So chapter 8 this morning uh, brings the events kind of together in a summary way from across David's 40-year reign as a king of Israel. And really what I want to do is, is kind of, first of all, before we get into the text, just ask why is chapter 8 here? Why, why this long list of David's victories and accomplishments here in chapter 8? Well, if you'll remember last week in chapter 7, God made a covenant with David, didn't he? He made a covenant with David specifically spelled out, and if you have your Bible in front of you, just look back one chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, and I want to read these words again. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 9 to 11. This is what God says by covenant with, to David. He says, And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house. Now what we read in chapter 8 is David, in answer to God's covenant, fulfilling what God had promised to do to him and for him, which is to subdue Israel's enemies around him and to grant their land security and peace. But we also read in verse 13 of chapter 8, and David made a name for himself. So God is answering again the promises of his covenant that he would make David have a great name. And he'd be a well-known king who accomplished justice and righteousness in the land. So two summary statements are in fact provided that kind of form the summary of this chapter. If we had to summarize chapter 8 in one sentence, I think the end of, chapter, the end of verse 6 and the end of verse 14 would do well as a good summary statement. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. That's a good summary of chapter 8. So we're going to walk through chapter 8 this morning under two big headings. First of all, in a briefer way, we're going to, we're going to look at the analysis of David's victories and just kind of see what land and territory he accomplished and conquered, and then talk about some of the potential pushback that this kind of um, activity receives and how we can address that faithfully. And then secondly, we're going to spend most of our time under the accomplishment of David's victories and what he actually achieved under God's help through his conquering efforts around Israel and beyond. And because King David is a type, as we know, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the true and ultimate king, we're going to see that David's good government and the victories that he accomplished here are but a dim foretaste of the perfect kingdom which will come when Jesus returns and when Jesus reigns over all things. First of all, let's analyze David's victories, the analysis of David's victories. Now, David's victories here in chapter 8 are not described chronologically. It's not like David did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. There's a, there's a different kind of structure. It's a geographical structure. What, what the writer is doing is telling us geographically the areas that David conquered. And we're not going to spend a whole, line, whole, whole lot of time talking about this, but I just want you to notice that it covers all four corners of Israel at that time, bringing total rest and total security all around them. First of all, we start to the west in verse 1. David moves west and he conquers, for the time being, the arch nemesis of Israel, the Philistines. In verse 2, David moves east, and he conquers Moab. Then he moves north 
in verses 3 to 5 and conquers the Arameans, which would be Zobah in verse 3 and Damascus in verse 5, which are both Aramean cities. And then he moves south in verses 13 and 14 to conquer the Edomites. So I'm not going to reread the first 14 verses, but the idea is from north, south, east, and west, David has secured peace for Israel by conquering all of their enemies. Now, a common question comes, and perhaps no doubt troubles some of us even here this morning. What are we to think of David's aggressive foreign policy here? Verse 2 seems particularly brutal if you think about it. Look at verse 2 again. He defeated Moab and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared. That seems particularly rough. And if you feel some level of abhorrence to these kind of activities, you're normal because we all rightly recoil at abuses of power and warmongering that are even taking place in our own world this day. But we have to remember that our God is just and righteous, and it's clear that he's the ultimate actor behind all of David's activities here. Now, I know for some of us that may complicate the issue even more. So now you're telling me it's not just David doing this, it's God behind it? I don't like that God at all. It might appear that God is in favor favor of some kind of genocide or war crimes. And the assumption would be, but that assumption would be a gross misrepresentation of actually what is happening here. David was acting as God's agent here, but not in some sort of malicious or evil way, but as an instrument of just judgment on nations that were wicked and evil. And let us not forget, Israel deserves similar judgment. And it was only God's mercy that spared them from such things. So we must be careful not to stand in judgment over God. If we know God in his holiness, and we in our rebellion and sinfulness, remember six last week with Uzzah and the ark? If we know something of God's holiness, the surprise here is not that God executed judgment, in verse 2 or verse 3 or verse 5 or verse 14, but that he showed mercy, which he did. Because the cities were not wiped out. The cities were defeated, is the language. But they were not exterminated. What should make us more amazed is not that God uses David to execute divine judgment, but that he allows a third of Moab to go free. And so we get a picture here in 2 Samuel 8 of in a limited scope, all the world that will one day come under the rule of Jesus Christ. The ends of the earth, north, south, east, and west, well beyond the physical borders of Israel that David secured, Jesus will bring peace on earth. But all of this earth belongs to our risen King Jesus. And just as David extended the borders of Israel, so our Jesus will extend his kingdom to cover every square inch of this planet. Acts 1.8 tells us, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Where? Well, in Jerusalem, but then in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Just keeps going further and further out. Revelation 11.15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. The earth, the ends of the earth, all belong to our Lord Jesus. And the moment... At this moment, he rules from heaven, but one day he will return and he will establish his rule on earth. And this is why we pray, 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And one day that prayer will be fully and finally answered as Jesus exercises his sovereign rule over the earth. So that's the analysis of David's victories. I said that was going to be somewhat brief. We're going to spend most of our time now looking at the accomplishments of David's victories, and I have four of them this morning. What did David accomplish through these defeats of Israel's enemies, and how do they relate to what our Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us? Well, the first thing we see that he accomplished is plunder. Plunder. He plundered the nations. That is, he defeated them and then gathered up the things in those nations of value and brought them back into Israel and devoted them to God, we read in the chapter. We read this several times. In chapter 8, verse 4, we read, David took from him, for, from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. In verse 7, we read, David took the shields of gold. In verse 8, we read that King David took very much bronze. But we, and, and when we're reading this chapter, dear ones, if you remember 1 Samuel you remember that one of the things that Samuel warned about that when the king would begin reigning over Israel is that they would take and take and take, right? And they would not just take from the people, but they would engage in unjust warfare and begin taking things that God commanded them not to take. And so is that what David's doing here? Is he violating? Well, it could be. He may be violating some, but the text doesn't tell us that. In fact, it seems to me that the, day, the text is explicit to t- tell us that's not what David is doing. In fact, he's not keeping it to build his own kingdom, as it were, to make himself more wealthy. In fact, he's devoting this, it says, to the Lord. Look at verses 11 and 12. These also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations he subdued. So he's being very intentional. This is not for me. This is, not, this is for God. Now, it's real easy as king to maybe hide under that. Say, well, it's not for me. It's for God. Now, it's all going to benefit me, but it's really for the Lord. I don't think that's what David's doing here. But just as David took the spoils of war for the glory of God among the enemies, Jesus has taken us as his own, dear ones. We are those who have been plundered by the Lord Jesus Christ. He has taken us and everything we own and claimed it for himself. Remember Jesus speaking in Luke chapter 4 in the synagogue, quoted from Isaiah 61. He read the following words. He said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. I've come to plunder you, Jesus says. And he says in Luke chapter 4, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So it's no surprise to us that Jesus does just that in his ministry. He goes about plundering Satan's captives and liberating them and claiming them for himself. This is why we read in Matthew chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus says, that's what I'm doing. I'm going around plundering Satan's house. I'm stealing his stuff back to God that he stole from God. And I'm taking it back for him. 
2 Corinthians 2.14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. You know what the image is there? That we are the captives of the Lord Jesus Christ who are being led out by him to spread his message everywhere we go as his faithful, happy prisoners. In fact, most interpreters see this as a reference to the lavish victory parades that were celebrated in Rome after great battles and that no doubt happened here in Israel after some of David's great victories. God is depicted as the sovereign victor with Christ as the general of the army leading the victory procession and Paul, captured by Christ, is joyfully joining in the celebration as he comes into the city. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, so that they may what? Come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Dear ones, that's us, and that's to be our posture to our family and friends and co-workers and neighbors, all those who are still in the grasp of the devil. They've been captured by them to do by him to do his will. What's our posture? We don't fight. We're not to be quarrelsome, but we're to be kind and able to teach and patient and correcting with gentleness, so that through that activity, God may perhaps grant them repentance so that they would come to the, their senses and escape from the devil's snare. That's us. We have been granted repentance, and we have escaped. from. It wasn't us. We didn't manufacture repentance on our own. It was a gift. We were given it. God granted us repentance. And through that, we were able to escape the snare of the devil because it was Jesus who came into the strong man's house, and he bound the strong man, and he plundered his house. We have been rescued out of the domain of darkness, and we've been brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So that's the first victory of David and our Lord Jesus Christ is plunder. Second victory is servanthood. Second accomplishment of his victory is servanthood. Look at a few verses here. Chapter 8, verse 14. Chapter 8, verse 14, we read, All the Edomites became David's servants. We read in chapter 8, verse 2, that the Moabites became servants to David. In chapter 8, verse 6, the Syrians became servants to David. Over and over again, everywhere that David goes, and he conquers these lands, he defeats the enemies, they become the servants of David. And as a result of David's defeat, his enemies became his servants. And so we too become Christ's servants as he plunders us. We are like Peter's mother-in-law. In chapter 8 of Matthew, we read, When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick, lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, the fever left her, and she did what? She rose and began to serve him. That's what we do. We are touched by the Lord Jesus Christ in our sin sickness. And what happens to us? We immediately rise and serve him. On April 19, 1885, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on that very text about uh, Peter's mother-in-law and her being healed and immediately rising to serve Jesus. Here are his four points. First, he says, Let us observe that it may be we have some in our house who need the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Secondly, the ministry of Jesus must precede the ministry of the saved ones. 
Thirdly, it is plainly taught in this text that strength to minister comes from healing. And fourthly, the desire to minister always arises out of healing. Here's what Spurgeon says regarding that last point about those who have been touched and freed from their sin by the Lord Jesus Christ immediately serve him. Here's what Spurgeon says. I believe that Peter's wife's mother was a particularly nice old lady. There is a rather a prejudice against a wife's mother. <laughs> and if Peter found it the proper thing to have her living in the house, I'm sure she was specially good woman. I have a picture of her in my mind's eye, a dear old soul, always busy and happy. When there was nothing else to do, she would mend the stockings or do any commonplace work. She was always busy, never had to ask her to work. She did it of her own accord. At cooking the meals and preparing everything for the house, she was perfectly at home, never grumbling, never complaining, never setting the husband against the wife, but always looking out to do everything that possibly could be done to make the household go along and all of its concern with oiled wheels. When she had the fever, she did not like to be laid aside, and so the moment she's restored, there she is at it. The ruling passion is strong now that death has been removed. She begins to serve Jesus, for she had always been serving somebody. You people who, when you were not converted, were always active, ought to be doubly active now. In the family, do all for the Lord Jesus Christ. Those commonplace things, sweeten and flavor them with love for Him. Reverence Him and glorify Him in all that you do. Is not there something you can do for your neighbor, something you can do for your children, some part of the Lord's work you can undertake? End quote. Well, what's Spurgeon doing there? Well, he's exhorting his congregation in 1885 to do what Peter's mother-in-law did when she was healed by Jesus. Up and serve. That's what we do, dear ones. The way we know we have been conquered by the Lord Jesus Christ is that we've become servants for his sake. Isn't that, wasn't that Paul's favorite self-designation? Slave of Jesus, servant of Jesus. I do all in obedience to my Lord. And that should be our attitude. Lord, there's nothing off limits. There's nothing you can't ask me to do. I am, as Isaiah said, Hanani in Hebrew, at your service. Whatever you want, Lord. Should we not begin our days that way? Should we not begin our week? Should we not frequently offer our prayers as, Lord, I am at your service? I'm not asking you to co-sign my plan for my life. I've ripped it up and thrown it aside. What do you want me to do? And he's told us most of what he wants us to do in Scripture, so we conform our lives to it. But nevertheless, we should regularly and consistently ask him, Lord, I want to serve you. Do with me as you wish. Thirdly, seen plunder. We've seen servanthood. Now thirdly, tribute. Tribute. We read in chapter 8 again, verse 2, that the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Again, chapter 8, verse 6, the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. So bringing tribute was the way that they manifested that they were servants. Just as David's enemies brought him tribute, so we are told that this is what we as God's people do to the, for the Lord Jesus Christ and what the nations will one day do for the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 5, we get this prophecy from the prophet Isaiah. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. And this is why we read in Revelation 21 at the very end of time when Christ is returned, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. 
the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, will receive the tribute of the nations to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know how that's going to look, but it's taking the things of value and giving them over to Jesus Christ. Now, what's the essence of our tribute? What kind of tribute do we bring? Well, certainly it includes our wealth, our money, as being one of the most wealthy nations in one of those wealthy periods in the history of the earth. Surely the wallet gets baptized with everything else, doesn't it? And so our money is belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. We offer up our life to him. But I think Micah 4, 1 to 2 gives us some additional help here. Here's what Micah says. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say... Now think about this. This is the tribute they're bringing. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What's the fundamental tribute that we as God's people bring to the Lord Jesus Christ? Church membership. Now you say, what in the world? Micah 4? Church members? What did Micah say? Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Where's the house of God now? It's in the local church. It's the local expression of the spiritual kingdom of God, where Jesus rules and reigns over his people for their good until they reach glory. So he says, these nations say, well, we're going to go to church. We're going to go to the house of God. In that time, it was the temple. But we're going to go to Jerusalem. Why, though? That he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. The tribute, dear ones, that we offer to Jesus is our lives submitted to his lordship in the context of his people, the local church. That's where we learn to walk with Christ. That's where we learn to live as his disciples baptize them and teach them to observe all that I commanded you in Matthew 28. And how did the apostles fulfill that? The book of Acts. They planted local churches and they established elders and they set up deacons and they gave the congregation the authority to watch over its membership. This is the Great Commission. This is, what our, this is the essence of our tribute. This is our whole life to Lord Jesus Christ. Teach me your ways. I want to walk in your path. So yes, I am availing myself of the local church and I am submitting myself to to the local church as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ to be taught and instructed by my brothers and sisters. This is the tribute we offer to Jesus as servants of his. If you've been plundered and you've been captivated by his grace, you say, first of all, I'm going to go to the house of God that I might learn God's ways, that I might walk in his paths. Isn't that freeing to think about? I mean, it's challenging, but it's also freeing. The essence of the tribute that we bring is to center our life and our existence and our commitments to Christ and his church so that we're not just getting, he gets 45 minutes of my week, but no, we build relationships with each other We know each other. 
We seek to serve one another. We care for each other in our illnesses and sicknesses and help each other in our sin and move each other as we go toward heaven together. And so relationships are critical. We, you, you can't be a house without relationships. People who live in a home together relate to one another. And so this is why I often say before and after this service are sometimes the most important times that we have together as a congregation because it's there that our relationships get tended to and we continue to love and know and serve one another. This is what the church is, what the church is to be committed to. Life together under God's word in obedience to the lordship of our king until he comes again. That's the tribute that we offer to our Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe some of you need to offer that tribute. You say, I'm a disciple. I'm not meaningfully committed to anybody. Well, you don't have to be committed to this one, but you do need to be committed to a one. A people that know you, that you know. If you'd like to know more about us, we're going to be starting a membership class here pretty soon in the fall. Love to get to know you that way. Just pay attention for when the sign-up becomes available for that. But we would love to have you join with us where we can do life together and walk in obedience to our Lord Jesus all the way to glory. So that is the three things first. Plunder, servanthood, tribute. Last thing. Fourthly and finally, justice. Justice. In chapter 8, verse 15, we get a summary of David's kingship. So David reigned over all Israel. Now that's good news. Remember, Israel was quite divided with lots of tribes kind of warring for space. And now David has united them all under his kingship. It's a glorious picture. A a unified Israel for the time being. (laughs) And David administered justice and equity to all his people. He administered justice and equity to all his people. Now before we conclude by looking at the Lord Jesus Christ in some detail, I want you to take your Bible and turn to Psalm 72. All right? Turn forward to Psalm 72, and this is David's, or this is the psalmist's commentary. This is of Solomon, David's son. This is Solomon's commentary. So this is David's son, who would eventually succeed him as king. This is Solomon's commentary on the kind of kingdom that he wants to have and the kind of kingdom that David did have at one time at this time in Israel's history, Psalm 72, and I'll just read the entirety of it. Notice what, David, notice what Solomon prays for. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. So, Solomon's describing what justice, biblical justice, looks like. Verse 5, May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like shadows, showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. What a great prayer. Verse 8, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. Notice the compassion of God's justice. 
He has pity on the weak and the, and the needy and the saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he rend, redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May, it, may its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Think about that as a legacy for David. That's, that's the, that was his prayer that Solomon recorded for us in Psalm 72 of what David's heart was for his people. He wanted to be a just king. He wanted to show equity. He wasn't going to be bribed by the rich or the poor. He was going to try to administer justice, correct oppression, and be a fair and righteous king in the land. Now, did he do that perfectly? Of course not. But he reigned in justice, and he reigned in righteousness. But, dear ones, here's the good news. His Psalm 72 pictures what the just kingdom of our God and Savior Jesus Christ is going to be like in the new heavens and new earth. Our King Jesus will reign there in perfect wisdom and righteousness. In fact, we read in Isaiah 9-7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, the fuel that's pumping this kingdom into the world is the heart of God. The zeal of God is going to do this. God really, really, really wants this to happen. And it's going to happen when Christ returns. Isaiah 11, 1 to 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Of course, talking about David first, but also Jesus, the son of David. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or despise disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. God answered that prayer in the life of David, and he's answering that prayer for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. One more, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land and in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely and this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And dear ones, just as David's reign established this righteous order in Israel at the time, and he established representatives at the end of chapter 8, you notice, that would represent this kingdom in their work, so we too are to represent his kingdom as citizens of Christ's kingdom now. Dale Ralph Davis, pastor and author, writes, You do not rule the kingdom now. You do not rule the kingdom now. If you do not, sorry, if you do not rule the kingdom now, will you ever bring it 
but you can exemplify the kingdom in whatever offices God has placed you, elder, deacon, father, mother, child, employer, employee. If you keep doing what is just and right toward the people connected with you, then the ideal of the kingdom is clear and the order of the kingdom is enjoyed. We're not Davidic kings, nor will we perfectly do what is just and right as Jesus will when he visibly and fully brings his kingdom at his second coming. But we ought to be planting kingdom righteousness in our own present plots, in whatever relationships or capacities we do have. Your task is not to leave doing what is just and right to David, but to peel off that kingdom ideal and stick it over the circumstances of your own life. You must be doing what is just and right for all your people. There's our application. Do what is just and right for your people. So what's the key word in this chapter? Well, the dominant word in this whole chapter that gives us hope in Jesus and that fuels all this plunder, servanthood, tribute, justice language is the word defeated. It shows up no less than five times. One, two, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verses 9 and 10. David's accomplishments here are, are told to be defeats. They are, he is defeating. Well, these defeats are but a dim reflection of David's son, the Lord Jesus, who defeats all of our greatest enemies. Just as God was with David to defeat Israel's enemies of that day, so in a much greater and eternal way, God sent Jesus to defeat sin, Satan, and death for us. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now what did that do? Christ absorbing our sins by his death? Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. That is, he took the bullets out of Satan's gun so that he's no longer able to condemn us for our sin. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. No more fear of death. Fear of dying, perhaps. Fear of dying is nothing wrong with fear of dying. That's a horrific prospect for a lot of us. It should be. But fear of death, gone. Fear of death, gone. Eventually, every enemy will be defeated. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 25. Then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Again, this is what he does at his second coming, not during his church on earth. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So the question is, is how will we respond? Now, thankfully, for the majority of us in this room, we are happily and joyfully captive and submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But for some of us, we may be like King Toy in this chapter. Say, King Toy? I don't remember reading about a King Toy. Well, let's look back at 2 Samuel 8 for just a moment, if you're still there. 2 Samuel 8, remember what King Toy did when he got word of what David was doing. David's conquering all these enemies, and he's like, I better get on this or I'm next. <laughs> Notice what King Toy says in verses 9 and 10. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, 
Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. What did Toy do? David just defeated my friends. He's coming for me next. Time to get in friendship with David. That's conversion. That's conversion, isn't it? That's what it means to become a Christian. We say, Lord Jesus, I have heard that you conquer people's lives. Would you conquer mine? Before I'm conquered by you? Would you receive me as your servant? Would you receive, would you plunder me? Would you let me offer you the tribute of my life? Would you be that servant of justice on my behalf, the Lord, my righteousness, who absorbed my sin? And would you take my justice and give me your righteousness so that you can be my just and righteous Savior and Lord? Listen, we can, like King Toy, lay down our arms and submit to God's anointed king, or we can have Psalm 2 happen to us. Psalm 2, 10 to 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. And you say, I'm not a king. Yeah, you are. You're the king of your life if you're outside of Christ. You are rivaling his kingship. You are fighting his kingship every day. You're saying he didn't leave the grave. And you're saying, no, I will retain sovereignty over my own life. Thank you very much. You're a king. We're all kings by nature. Until we transfer our, until we lay our crowns down, until we lay our scepters down, and we give them to Jesus. But notice what Psalm 2 says to these kings. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. Who's the son? Kiss him, love him, serve him, follow him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Now, Christ isn't moody, okay? He's not sitting up in heaven angry all the time. No, it's saying, The Lord is slow to anger, and he's patient, but don't count his patience as ignorance, and don't count his patience as though he's not going to do something one day. He will. He says, he will be angry, you will perish in the way, and his wrath at that moment will be quickly kindled. You don't want to face that king. If Toy King Toy didn't want to face down David, you don't want to face down Jesus. He's not the meek and mild Jesus that he was here. He was a servant who came to suffer and die so that we would not be crushed when he returns again. Because he's God. And he's coming in the fullness of his glory and power. And people are going to cry out for mountains and rocks to fall on them, to crush them before he ever gets here. You don't want to be calling on Mount whatever, to fall on you. Some of the hills in eastern Kentucky. Appalachia, come on over, crush me. I don't want to face Jesus. He's offering amnesty now. And the opportunity for us just to joyfully submit to a righteous administration. It's the greatest kingdom we could ever be under. He's not taking advantage of you. He asks nothing he will not give. He will never ask more of you than he's already given to you and for you. You say, well, he can ask my life. Well, he's already given his life for you. 
So he can't, he's not going to ask you more. <laughs> he gave up everything that we never had. All of heaven, all the glory to suffer and die in our place. And he endured all the torments of hell that we will never experience one whiff of. He did on the cross. So we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 2, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So while some rulers and nations are at war with God's kingdom, some lay down their arms and they seek peace under his reign. Some nations have to be subdued. Some people have to be subdued. But others just submit. Some remain rebellious, but others are repentant. Some will be crushed, but others will be contrite. Who will we be, dear ones? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for our risen and reigning King Jesus, the son of David, who is right now reigning spiritually over us as his people, as his church. And he is on the throne of the universe, working out his perfect plan, which right now involves building his spiritual kingdom, building his church, bringing people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation into discipleship, baptizing them, and teaching them to observe everything that he has commanded while he was on earth. So Lord, thank you that we get to play a part, that we live our lives in the shadow of your kingdom, in submission to your kingdom, as participants and citizens of your kingdom. And we look forward to your second coming, when your kingdom will be fully realized and all four corners of the earth will be taken over and every kingdom will be put down and all kings will give up their tribute and to the Lord Jesus Christ and every knee will bow and every, t- every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, if that's not true, we're wasting our time. But because the grave is empty, there's news to tell, there's a kingdom to announce, and there's a righteous cause to be involved in, and there is a, a, a claim on our lives to live worthy of the gospel with which we've been called. Help us to do that. We've confessed our many failures and struggles even this morning, and we thank you that you are a good and gracious king who cares for the poor and needy. That's us. We are oppressed in our sin. We are those who are under the, we're under the tyranny of Satan. Thank you that you remember our frame. Thank you that you care for us. And we look to you again to renew and restore and reinvigorate our love for your kingdom. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.